Hi, and welcome to the Pit Permaculture Podcast number 18. I'm Robin Rosenfeld, editor and publisher of Pit Magazine, and today I'm talking with Adrian Iodice from Beekeeping Naturally. We're going to look inside the beehive and learn about natural beekeeping and what makes honey so special. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks, Adrian, for having a chat. Yeah, no worries. So in issue 13 of PIP, we talked, had a, talked about honey and the different properties of honey. And in amongst that, we talked about caring for the bees and the different ways of uh, managing bees so that it's not necessarily about the honey, but it's about caring for the bees as well. So your business and your focus is natural beekeeping. What, what does natural, how does natural beekeeping differ from say, mainstream beekeeping? Yeah, well, um, there's a big question. Um, apart from the physical things, the physical side of it or the management side of it, um, which we can get a little bit into, a lot of, a lot of the focus is, is drawn away from, from honey production. So um, being the topic today, honey, um, We'll talk a little bit about that, um, or a lot about that, and probably less about the management side of things. Um, so, a natural beekeeper will will tend to care for the health of his or her bees for foremost over the the amount of honey they're getting. In other words, um, I'll, I'll compare it to a commercial beekeeper, for instance. A uh, commercial beekeeper will generally travel with their bees, take their bees to pollination zones, um, pollination areas, almond pollination, apple, canola, so forth and so forth. Uh, in, and that's been proven and shown that it's not necessarily very good for the bees' health. They're feeding on one type of pollen, one type of nectar for weeks on end. Uh, bees need a, a variety of different food sources, as we all do. Um, so that that there alone is is one reason that natural beekeeping differs from commercial style beekeeping or what we call conventional beekeeping. Uh, so a lot of the focus is taken away from honey production and put into stagnant hives, so hives that stay in your backyard, um, and uh, and we focus a lot of our attention to the well-being and health of our bee colony. Also, talking about that, taking them to almond plantations and things mm. like that, there's also the danger of uh, use of pesticides and mm. that building up in the hive. It's yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, almond crops are sprayed all the time um, for uh, fungus. For fungus, They use fungicides a lot on almond crops. Pesticides... Um, and, and most crops are today, uh, as as we're all aware. Mm. Um, so you know you've got you've got literally millions and millions and millions of bees from all over the all over the country going into a certain area in South Australia. This is just for almond pollination. There's uh, other pollinations all over the country happening at the same time or at different times of the season. So you get all these bees coming in from different zones, and um, 
what ends up happening is uh, if there's a if there's a disease outbreak uh, in one person's or one apiarist's uh, colonies, then that disease will will spread quickly to or could spread quickly to to other other beekeepers in the area. So therefore, you know, we we're, we're really putting bees at risk eating a lot of almonds. To be honest with you, yeah. Um, so uh, and then I guess they take those diseases back to exactly. where they're from and spread them around to the local mm, pests and diseases well. absolutely yeah so uh so that that's that's a detriment to the bees health as well um and what about the sort of build-up of pesticides um, oh it's huge in the comb and things mm. like that how yeah. does that affect the bees yep so over time um so so wax itself is is a product that the bees create the the, the honeycomb the wax that it's made out of um, they they exude it from um, wax glands from their body, uh, and then they they chew it up and add propolis to it and all other sort of enzymes to it, and and then make the cells, make the honeycomb. Uh, wax is fat, really, if you think about it. It's it's fat, it's a fat product. That's why it burns well in candles, mm. um, as a candle. And um, you know, and um, what what happens is the. The residue of, of the of the pesticides and the fungus or all pesticides, uh, uh, the wax absorbs those residues and holds it in there, and then over time, over you know a few years, those residues become quite uh, quite strong uh, inside the inside the wax. So yeah, it's not a, it's not an ideal situation. Mm. And is that also like the practice <coughs> of um Reusing combs, mm. as opposed to saying taking the comb, crushing it, getting the honey out, and then using that wax for a byproduct, is that more of a natural beekeeping style of doing it than spinning it and then reusing the comb? Yes, definitely. Um, a good beekeeper would will will harvest or will move old brood comb out towards the end towards the honey area so brood comb is where uh, the babies have been raised to the nest area of the hive of the colony and uh, over time uh, those brood combs slowly get moved out towards the, the honey area the honey is kept separately from the brood area so there's two separate areas um, and a good beekeeper will will over time move those brood combs out towards the end and harvest them out with with honey mm. over say two or three two to four years possibly between there. Uh, a lot of commercial beekeepers, unfortunately, that I'm aware of, um, will tend to keep the brood area separate from the honey area uh, and keep the queens keep keep the brood area intact. For, for longer periods, therefore more residues will build up in that brood area. Also, when honey's harvested out of a commercial hive or a conventional hive, uh, the honeycomb isn't crushed. It's The cappings are taken off the cells and the honeycombs are put into a centrifugal extractor and that spins at a rate of knots and then uh, spits out the, the honey out of the cells and those wax frames then are called stickies and they're able to be put back into the beehive and filled again quickly by the bees again that's more residue 
coming in. Because each time a bee forages out on a flower, it's bringing home a product, whether that be nectar or pollen. Um, but in the case of bringing nectar, that nectar will have some residue of the pesticide in it. Therefore, mm. piecing it into that cell again, uh, the, the wax cell then sucks up that residue of pesticide, stores it in the wax, and, uh, and, and the process is repeated and repeated and repeated again and over and over again until uh, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of that residue in the wax left mm. over. Mm. Your slogan for beekeeping naturally is, it's not all about the honey. What are some of the ways that you, as a natural beekeeper and other natural beekeepers, look after the bees so that the welfare of the bees is the first consideration and the collection of honey is the second consideration? Yeah, okay, so one, one of the practices is having stagnant hives, so leaving my hives in one place, not moving them around, chasing the flow, the honey flow. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not paying a mortgage with honey, so there's no need for me to chase honey to pay my bills. Uh, commercial beekeepers is different. Um, I, so I can leave my hives in my backyard and, uh, and or on property I live on and, and, you know, pretty much leave them alone. Because I'm not selling honey, um, I give a lot of my honey away when I have it. I um, tend to not really work my bees that hard. So once the hive's full, it's full. Um, now, they can't fill it up anymore with, with extra honey that they may collect. So a week or two, <coughs> excuse me, a week or two might go past uh, and I haven't got around to harvesting any more honey out. So the bees actually just sit around waiting. They, they've got a full house. They're quite content. They can either swarm at that time or late in the season, which is now, they start cleaning up and they start fixing and maintaining the health of their colony, keeping a hive beetle at bay, keeping disease at bay, um, adding propolis to the inside of the hive, which, which they really... It's a really important thing for them. Um, Why is it important? Well, propolis acts as a um, as a defence mechanism. So it's like like the inner an inner membrane around the actual organism around the, the beehive, the bee colony itself. If we picture the bee colony as an as an organism, a super organism, and each bee is a cell of that organism. Mm. Um, while the propolis is on the outside of that of that organism, and and every square millimeter of the internal surface of the beehive is covered in propolis, is got a fine coating of propolis. Propolis has been tested, and it's 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 highly um, anti anti uh, bacterial. <laughs> it actually acts as part of the bee's immune system. Yeah. Um, and we know that now, and you know, scientists have been doing a lot of studies on propolis. And um, so it's really important for the bees to maintain a good volume of good propolis on the internal uh, surface of the beehive. Mm. So each time we go into a beehive, for instance, mm. we're breaking that seal that keeps pathogens out, right? Mm. Uh, and the bees have to work hard then to manage and control that that breaking, that, that, that breach 
Uh, you know, Rudolf Steiner goes as far as saying each time you go into a beehive, it's the equivalent as going into a, a, a man's chest, mm. you know, opening a man's chest up and or a person's chest up and, 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 and letting disease and pathogens in that way. And I, I really can relate to that. I, I can understand that. Um, when you work with bees on, I guess, on the depth of understanding that I suppose I've learned um, over time, you can really get a feeling for, for that, that expression. Um, so it's, it's really important that we, and in natural beekeeping, we don't, we don't break that seal as often as suggested. As long as we can maintain a, uh, a pest-free and a pathogen-free or disease-free hive, uh, then, you know, we're doing the right thing and leaving the bees do their thing. Uh, you know, so at the moment, my hives are all absolutely chock-a-block full of honey. Uh, I harvested about 60 kilos out of a three or four hives the other the other week about four weeks ago mm. i haven't harvested anything since and i know they're full because the eucalypts have been flowering but how much honey can i deal with you know the 60 kilos of honey sitting in buckets there mm. yeah i can sell it and give it away but that's not what it's about for me um so the bees are content they're kind of just hanging around doing their thing and enjoying life really and not being worked to the bone you know mm. each time we take honey out of a hive the bees need to replace that that gap bees despise gaps in their hive they don't like having spare space they fill it they want to work and they want to fill it that's their their nature um but if it's a if it's an empty hollow tree they would fill it to to the brim and then they'll they'll do their thing and and that's that's cleaning and looking after the well-being of themselves so i guess that's another part of natural beekeeping is to just let them do their thing Mm. So we're going to go and have a look at the hives and harvest some honey because mm. it sounds like you're due to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, before that, I just wanted to talk to you about like maybe how you got into beekeeping and where you're at with it now. Like I know you're extremely passionate about it and you know your relationship with the bees and how it is mm. for you when you go and open a hive and what that experience is for you. Mm. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, look, uh, I don't... I can't remember exactly when I got bees. Um, I I was growing, you know, my own vegetables in the suburbs of Melbourne. Had a veggie garden. I come from an Italian background, and Mum's a passionate gardener, um, vegetable gardener, and and you know she grows a lot of flowers as well. But um, my grandfather, my on my dad's side, was a was a market gardener, you know, apparently you know, in Italy. So he grew carrots and watermelons Mm. um so uh i think it's in my genetics to to garden so i I love gardening and um love growing my own veggies and feeding my children my family things from our garden so uh sorry about that (laughs) turn that off so um i think for me it was just a, a natural uh a natural process was to you know the next step was to to get bees and and have some of my own honey and of course i i uh back then there was no such thing known as natural beekeeping um so you know i just did what 
the old fellas told me, and that was, uh, you know, change, kill my queens and put new queens in every year and, you know, pretty much run a hive as a commercial beekeeper would. And, and that's pretty much how most people are taught these days, really commercial practices. Uh, and then I did a biodynamic course and uh, met a wonderful man called Tobias Mega. Uh, he's a biodynamic market gardener and he sells a lot of produce at the Warburton Markets in Victoria. Um, but he's an old school beekeeper as well, a German man, and we become quite good friends over the years. Uh, he sent me off to Germany to, because I was picking his brain about beekeeping, uh, biodynamic beekeeping, and he, he sent, sent me off to Germany to do a, a beekeeping course at a place called Millifera in southern Germany with uh, a wonderful man called Thomas Rudetsky. And uh, when I got back from there, I, I said to Tobias, I said, Tobias, this stuff needs to be available to, to Australia. We need to teach this here. Um, nobody's teaching biodynamic beekeeping here. I mean, Tim Malfroy is the only person I knew at the time in Australia teaching natural beekeeping. Uh, so we wanted to teach something else and that was natural beekeeping but also bring a huge biodynamic uh, lesson in there as well um, so that's how we got started Tobias and I formulated a, a course um, which I did and was fantastic yeah that's right yeah <laughs> you did yeah, yeah very inspiring yeah pip headquarters down there <laughs> that's right uh, yeah and and I guess once that got going it's, it was interesting because at the time, it, the bee interest, people were interested in bees, but it, it wasn't like now. I mean, right now is so much interest in bees. It's, it's out there. Um, mm. it, it seems like everyone's talking about bees. Um, and, I, and right so, because, rightly so, because of what's actually happening to bees at the moment um, around the world. So there's so much of a link between bees and, and our food source. But it goes deeper than that. Uh, it goes really deep. It goes to our spirituality and our sacredness. And if we look at our history in bees, with bees, human history with bees, there's more connection than just honey and pollination. There's sacredness there. And, and that's where I'm starting to head now into mm. that field, um, getting into, I guess, the the sacredness of bees and what that means and, and how that can relate to, to my to my spiritual self and uh, and people that I can bring into that realm as well. So I am very passionate about bees, but I, I'm doing a lot less beekeeping these days and just being, more being. Being <laughs> so. with bees. Well, shall we go out and... Sure. Check the hives. Yeah, there wasn't much talk about honey. Have though, a chat with <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can get onto the honey while sure, we're sure. in the hive. Yeah. All right, let's go. Okay. Okay, so now we're down by the hive. It's a Kenyan top bar hive, and we're going to have a look inside and get some honey. Mm. So, Adrian, what do you do before you enter a hive? Yeah, so... I guess the first thing really should do is, is check the weather. That's really important. Um, is it cold? Because if it's a cold day, then we're opening that, that organism, remember, and um, we're, we're going to 
get all, all that heat's going to escape out of the hive. I mean, bees are trying to maintain a, a temperature of around 35 degrees, 36 degrees around the brood area. Um, so if we, we open the hive now, all that heat's going to escape, or a lot of that heat's going to escape. So we want to make sure that it's a fairly warm day, um, but not too hot. If it's a hot day, you know, 30 plus or 28 plus, the bees are a bit bothered. They don't necessarily want to be annoyed when it's hot. Plus, you're dealing with comb, wax comb that is really soft and, and you, you can have major, major issues with it breaking off. So we tend to pick a day that's about 20-odd degrees, low 20s, mid-20s, um, and, uh, and fairly still because if it's windy, again, the bees get quite upset uh, with the wind blowing in and out of their hive. So that's the first thing I do. Um, the next thing I do is prepare all my, my gear, of course, what I'm going to use to harvest honey. Uh, a bucket or an esky. I use an esky because it's got a hingeable lid, a lid on a hinge. It's big enough. Uh, I can cut honeycomb off into the esky, close the lid quickly, and that deters other bees finding that honey source and getting in there. So uh, that's really important. Um, the other thing is making sure that I've got all my tools on hand so I don't have to leave the job and go and find a tool in the shed somewhere and come back. So I've got a bag. I carry a bag with all my, my tools in it, anything that, I'd, that I'll need. Um, I, I even go as far as sometimes, most of the times when I'm harvesting honey, lighting my smoke and having it lit, um, ready just in case I need it. I don't often use a smoker, but, uh, well, it depends on, on the job I'm doing in the hive. So if I'm harvesting a lot of honey out of a number of hives, I'll generally wear my bee suit and, and use a smoker um, or have the smoker ready on hand. In this hive, in this instance, we're only going to be working one hive. So I know these bees, you know, these bees know me. So we have a relationship and uh, we, we, we generally, I don't generally need to use a smoker or my bee suit when I'm working this particular hive. Uh, every hive, every colony has its own personality uh, and that can vary from really defensive, super defensive uh, to completely docile. Um, and, and, it, and it depends on a lot of factors why bees behave differently and one is obviously genetics but the big one is how they've been treated in the past so if I'm a real rough nut with my bees you know I'm in there disturbing them on, on a windy day and robbing all the honey out of their hive at some point they're going to get quite you know annoyed with that behavior and they're going to let me know so then next time I come down, they're going to say, no, 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 you, you, you don't respect us. We're, we're going to give you a hard time now. So that's another factor that, that uh, creates angry bees or, or defensive bees. Another factor is also what they've been foraging on. There's certain plant species that can, can affect their behaviour too. For instance, Angophora, that was flowers, flowering recently, uh, can, can send them a little bit, uh, a little bit wild to mm. say the least. Um, so I only just learnt that one. Uh, so the my, hard way. The hard way, yeah. <laughs> we were getting stung up at the house and wondering what was going on. But it's the first time I've had to deal with Angophora. See, so I've only been living up here for about three years, uh, four years now, I think. 
uh, and that was the first time we had a big Angophora flowering going on in the area. So uh, something to learn. I know bloodwood, eucalypt honey does the same thing. If it's been raining while the flowers have been in bloom, uh, then they tend to get a bit crazy on that stuff too. Some say that the flower, the, the honey ferments because of the rain. The nectar starts to ferment and it turns into meat, of course, and the bees get drunk on it. Bit so, aggro. So they get a bit <laughs> brawly in the bar. That's what they say. So uh, I don't know. I'd like to. It's an interesting one. Yeah. So yeah, the next step is to approach the hive and just make sure that they're they're doing their thing at the front. They're they're coming and going. Um, you know, they look they look like they're behaving normal uh, and busy. Um, we pick a warm day as well because most of the forager bees are out. They're out mm. foraging, so we, we're dealing with less bees inside the colony, inside the hive. Um, the the next most probably one of the important steps is for me is to. <clears throat> so I actually do a little bit of a check-in with the bees. I'll, I'll stand behind the hive, touch the hive on the top bars and picture myself, really going deep, picture myself inside the hive. And this is that spiritual connection I was talking about earlier. Go into the hive and picture myself as an actual bee in the hive, uh, checking the honeycombs and, and letting them know that that's what I'm going to do in, in my way, you know, in our connection. I don't think we need to talk to them, um, but I'm pretty sure that they pick up on, on that energy. So I do. I feel really, <clears throat> really good doing that. So I'm guessing they might feel the same. Mm. Um, so just slowing down as well before you, so you don't sort of come in with all the energy of what you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. That absolutely. That's so important. Yes, yeah, forgot to mention that. Yeah, if you've had a, a blue with your partner or your kids or your mate, um, you know, it's really important not to bring that energy down to the bee yard because mm-hmm. they will pick up on that, I guarantee. They'll pick it up and they'll throw that mirror right in front of you and say, here you go, have a bit of your own medicine back. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've done that and I've learnt the hard way time and time again. Because it seemed, mm. I probably haven't learnt the hard way, but, but I know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, if you, come with gentleness and an open heart and and just really feel feel what you're doing because what you're actually doing is going into that organism and f- bring the blessing with you you know feel feel the privilege of that going in there taking some of their honey you know they've been working really hard to get that honey and uh and we're taking some and being really grateful for that it's really important um and not taking too much, you know, one or two bars here and there. You don't have to do it all in one go. It, you can take, you know, a bar out today and a bar out next week or a bar out tomorrow. And that way there the bees are less disturbed as well. Mm. So I like to do it like that where I'm not spending a whole day just taking honey, 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 honey. But I've got the time to do that, so, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, let's... Let's do it. Get into it. Okay. So the basic tools I use here is, um, as you can see, it's a an orange-handled fishing knife. It's a really stiff, hand, stiff-bladed fishing knife, which cost me five bucks years and years ago. I uh, don't don't use a hive tool most of the time. Uh, I have one in my bag in case I need to use it, but generally this fishing knife does the job for me, and and I use it to pry open the the top bars from each other. 
Um, remember what I said earlier about the propolis. They tend to coat the entire surface with propolis, and that's a really sticky substance. It's like tar almost. Um, and they also fill in all the gaps. So wherever the top bars meet each other, where they touch each other, of course the bees will fill that gap with propolis and glue it together. So we need a stiff-bladed knife or something like that to pry that open, mm. so, as, as I'm going to show you. I'll just do my little quick meditation here. Yeah. My quick check-in with these girls. So as you can see here, Robin, there's bees just slightly on the outside of the follower board because there's a gap below. There's a gap under the follower board there. The follower board is the end board of the that seals in the. There's the horses. Yeah. So the, the follower hive. board is a, is like acts as a, fa- a false wall. So it moves laterally in the Kenyan hive, left or right, uh, on either side of the, the brood nest. There's usually two follower boards in a Kenyan hive. It uh, depends which one you're using. This one has one because it's an end entrance. Mm. So the entrance is down the end there. So there's one follower board. Uh, and as you can see, moving that it reveals one almost full bar of honeycomb. Mm. That looks good. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, what we're looking at is is a beautiful honeycomb, and, and you can see how slowly I'm moving. Mm. Right? No, no fast movements. That weighs. I can feel the weight in that. It's probably about just under two kilos, I reckon. Um, it's not completely full. You can see there's a few empty cells there, and they're so, so they're starting to bring in. Uh, they're starting to bring in uh, some nectar into these cells, I'm guessing. Mm. The other side's full, almost. See the other side? It's, it's all capped. See all these cells are capped? Capped full of honey. I might stick my finger in there. What do you reckon? Have a bit of a taste. Look at that, the bees are already onto it. You want to have a taste? Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Absolutely delicious. Mm. And, you know, we've damaged that comb a little bit, but they'll quickly repair that. They're really good at repairing stuff. Yeah. And that's um, one of the advantages of for, bee, for the bees is uh, with natural beekeeping is we actually crush the honeycomb. A lot of conventional beekeepers say, oh, but you're making them work by building more comb. You know, they have to build more comb. That's what they do. They love building comb. Um, mm. You know, they, they sweat wax out of glands and that activates those glands and purifies them, gets rid of toxins as well. So by keeping those, um, those glands active, we're actually helping them, you know, get through cleansing sort of duties as well in their, mm. their own bodies, you know. So this is a, a full comb. You can see this is an empty one that I put back a couple of weeks ago and they haven't quite built onto it again. Okay. I cut so that off. So does that mean the flow is slowing, slowing down right down, yeah. It is, So would you leave that in or would you take I'll it I'll leave out? it in for now. <clears throat> I'll take it out 
um, probably towards the end of autumn, okay. near winter, if they haven't built on it. But, you know, my guess is as good as yours at what's going to flower next. Or if anything, I noticed down... Yours is probably a bit better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit better. Uh, but I noticed down the road here the um, the mahogany, which is an, a native eucalypt. We, it's called a mahogany for some reason or another. I think the timber resembles the European mahogany or the American mahogany, wherever mm. it's from, I don't know. But um, that's starting to come into flower as well. So we're expecting that, that flower to move up into the hills here because it started down further, down... Down, um, down near the coast a bit more, and I'm I'm expecting it uh, probably a couple of weeks behind. So uh, I reckon the mahogany around here are going to come into flower soon, and so I'll leave that there so they can quickly rebuild some comb onto that. Yeah. Mm. So what we determine is how many honeycombs they have before we do a harvest. Okay. Um, I know that these girls are pretty full, so I'm not going to try to determine that. Yeah. At this point, but for, for people that are new to this, always determine how much they have. And usually during um, summer when there's a big flow on, you can, you know, take a comb here and a comb there and, and you're pretty much sure that they're going to re- replace it or, mm. or build a new, new comb in that space. Um, coming towards the end of a flow, and if you want to harvest then, you need to leave at least six to eight full honeycombs in a Kenyan top bar hive. Okay to get them through winter. Remember, there's not much flowering in winter going on. So the bees need a a food resource. That's why they collect honey Mm. and nectar. They collect nectar and turn it into honey and have it stored in the cells as a food resource for for lean times for winter. Mm. And if we take all their resources, they're left with nothing. We're forced to feed them artificial food, which is sugar. Mm. They're not supposed to eat raw sugar or, or... processed sugar they, they don't eat it's not a natural food source of theirs they'll take it but it um it actually there's um tests done by the bio biodynamic mob in germany that shows that it really affects their gut organisms in there and uh, gut bacteria so feeding them sugar is not an ideal situation mm. what we want to do is leave them their honey uh, leave them enough of, of their own honey so they can easily get through winter and into spring with that resource they have. Mm. If there's anything left over after winter, then we can we can take a little bit of that too. So the honey's not going to go to waste. Yeah. You know? So never be afraid to leave them more than you think they may need. Mm. But on a, in a general rule in a Kenyan hive, I leave between six to ten bars. Ah, sorry, six to eight bars of honey. Okay. Pure honeycomb. So that's this comb we're looking at here, Robin, is a, is a harvestable honeycomb, mm. as you can see. Completely capped. There's no empty cells. There's no uncapped cells, you know, all around here. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's completely chock-a-block. See it? Yep. So we could harvest that. Mm-hmm. Um, We're going to put that one just there on the side here. As I open this up, as you can see, I'm opening it up. I'm only dealing directly with the bees that are exposed right now, unlike a conventional angstroth hive Mm. where we're ripping a roof off and all those bees then are aware that we're in the hive and they come up with vengeance. Mm. 
we're only dealing with these bees on these two combs, yeah. on the one face of these two combs. Not many and the bees, others are, are all still. The others are all over there, away. yeah, tucked away in the brood area. You know, there's not as many bees here in the honey area because it's all sealed and capped. They've done their work. So we can probably harvest these two combs out. Not a problem at all. Look at that, beautiful. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that looks pretty heavy. How it, heavy yeah, do you think that is? About two kilos. Yeah. It's two kilos of honey there. Two kilos of honey, and then it would be more heavy with yeah. the. Yeah, with the top wax. bar and the wax and stuff. There's not a lot of wax in, in in a comb. A lot of people think that. Oh, look, there's so much wax there. But I crush a whole two kilo comb down and. Honestly, I'm probably left with 20 grams of wax. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's space. Yeah, it's not a lot of wax. Um, so this theory of, oh, they take so much wax, so much honey to build a lot of wax, and yeah, you know, a little bit. But um, it, what it is, is is the time factor that it takes them to build the new comb, and that's what's not beneficial for commercial beekeepers because if they're crushing honeycomb, then they're having to get the bees to rebuild that wax. Mm. And, and, and you know, the flowering period might only be three or four weeks. Mm. So if it takes them two weeks to rebuild all their combs mm. and then fill them up with honey, they, they, you know, they've wasted that, that two weeks of harvesting time. Mm. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. yeah. If they were sticking... Stickies back in there, like I said earlier, full combs with empty cells, they full wax. Then they just have to fill them fill up. up. Yeah, yeah. And I have to rebuild. Mm. So that's why the Kenyans not favoured by commercial beekeepers. Although there is a guy I've heard of recently that's running Kenyan hives commercially. There's also the uh, the Abbey in uh, Jamboree Abbey's running 14 and 15 Kenyan hives up there, which I helped set up. And they're selling their honey through the abbey and they're making candles with their wax. That's oh, beautiful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful thing, what they're doing. Yeah. You know, small scale commercial beekeeping can work with Kenyan hot top bar hives. Yeah. Uh, more connection with the bees, you know. Mm. I haven't got a thousand hives and completely disconnected with their, all my colonies. Yeah. I actually know my bees personally, you know. <laughs> They've each got a name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did name them once, but I forgot them all. We've had actually By the written, time you got to the end. Yeah, so. You got the first one. Yeah, so um, let's have a look at this next comb. Oops. Yeah, so this one's not as heavy. It's not as thick. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a full honeycomb. I can see that. Mm, it's completely it's all sealed. Oh, I just got stung. Beauty. Too. She got me good, right in the hand. That's a bit odd. <laughs> mm. That's all right. Is so one girl decided she was just going to sting me on the finger. I'm, I'm, I'm in my shorts with no shoes, uh, no veil, no, no beer gear on. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And this time, for some reason, one of the girls came out and just whacked me right on the hand. And that's okay, that's just the way it is. Now... We can look at this as in two ways, like, oh, I got stung, or I can go, thank you. Thank you for the blessing, because the venom is, 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 a, is a healing product too. So, you know, I can benefit from, from whatever it is that venom does for my body. Mm. I'm sure it boosts my immune system some way. So there are benefits to that too, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I was getting smashed now by five or six bees, I'll be running up the hill. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm not going to stand here and cop it. 
but one bee, one sting, uh, mm. that's all right, we it's, can deal with that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what we'll do, we'll, um, we'll take those two, those two combs that we pulled out earlier mm -hmm. and we'll go through the process. So I'll start moving these combs back. A lot of people, a lot of people ask me, how, how do you put combs back in or top bars back in and not crush bees? Because what happens as I put this comb back down, bees come up through this gap here. You see the girls sitting mm. there. And if I push that, I'd squash all those bees in that gap. Yeah. So what I do, I put one end down and I, I just do this very, very gently, kind of massage and bump them, massage them downwards. They'll either go up or they'll go down. They don't like to be bumped. Mm. You think about it, there's 50,000 bees in a, a good healthy colony. You see that? They all jumped out of the way. Mm. I'm able to close that. No squashed bees. Now they're in complete darkness in there and they're bumping into each other all the time. So as soon as they get a bump, they want to move, right? Mm. They want to move out of the way. So we give them a gentle bump and they move. It's a real simple method. The trick is, the key is to take your time. Mm. Don't try to rush this. This is a really important time to just slow down and wait. It does take time, mm. but well worth it. Because if I crush bees, I'm going to really cheese them off and they're going to remember that and, and they're not going to be friendly with me anymore. Because mm. like, you come in and crush us. Why should we let you in our hive? Mm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So these two are the ones we're going to harvest now. So, to harvest, I'll uh, I can use my bee brush or a, or a nice bit of green grass, soft green grass. I like to use um, a horse hair bee brush, not a not a, 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 a nylon one. The, the horse hair is much softer, mm -hmm. so it's it's gentler on the bees when I'm brushing them off the hive, off the off the combs. Uh, but first thing I do is, is give it a good shake down. So I, I lift it up above the column, above the hive, not on the ground. A lot of uh, conventional guys will shake it out in front of the hive. I, mm. I don't like that. I like to shake it back into the hive. So quick jerk down. One, two. I get most of the bees off, and then I just work the rest of the bees off with the brush. So most of the bees got shaken off then. And the rest of them, again, see, I'm just touching them. I'm not really brushing them. There's this little small hive mm. in there. Get that rid one. of that one. Stuck in the brush. Um, so we've got all the bees off that comb, or bar two. And then we can take it over to our esky over here. Mm -hmm. What I do is, um, is uh, I cut in like that and then I cut upwards so they can drop off into the bucket with less fuss boom, boom. there's a bee in here and I'll just get her out yep so and I always leave always leave about a centimeter of comb on there so so when I put this back in the bees will start to build and use that guide to build straight comb again. Mm, so you don't get cross combing. That's right. It's really important to, to leave that on there. And that's that. Mmm, look at that beautiful really, honey. Really lovely stuff. Mm. 
What do you mm, reckon? Really nice. Delicious stuff. Delicious. So this is tasty. Yeah, this is blue box honey. Um, okay. Because we had a really big blue box flowering here over over summer. Mm. Uh, and um, it was really good. It, yeah, it's it's delicious. Now a lot of people underestimate the value of honey. You know, they think they can go buy a jar of honey for five bucks, six bucks, and got a good deal. But generally speaking, if you're going to buy five, six dollar jars of honey. Is it really honey? As you're probably well aware, all the, uh, the huff and puff around imported honey lately, and how it was a lot of it's been adulterated with with uh, rice syrup. Mm. Well, yeah, that's what you get when you pay peanuts for for peanuts. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Peanuts for gold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, that's not gold. That's that's peanuts. Mm. But um, when you when when we're looking at uh, a local beekeeper. That's a small-scale local beekeeper. He can only he or she can only produce so much honey per year. Mm. Then what's that honey worth? You know, really, what's it worth? It's worth. I think a friend of mine, Willow Hankinson, did calculation. And if we were to pay the bees a dollar an hour for their <laughs> labour, it's going to cost us about three and a half grand for a jar of honey. Yeah. You know, and when you think about that, it's like what? Yeah. And that's a dollar an hour, by the way. Um, so what's a jar of honey worth, you know? It's, it's, honey's medicinal. It's a medicinal product. It, it was given to pharaohs. It was given to aristocracy. It wasn't really traded. It wasn't, it wasn't sold. It was given to people in, in, uh, on, on, in high degree in, in societies and cultures because it was a, it was a healing substance. And mm. um, if we bring ourselves back to that understanding then we'll start to revere it to, uh, to be what it's worth, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, uh, you know, it's a very special product and uh, we shouldn't under, underestimate it and mm. just buy it willy-nilly because mm. it's cheap. Mm. And um, they used to, like, give people honey from different places depending yes. on what was wrong with them because of what they were feeding mm. off. The yeah. Bit, the... yeah, so true. Yeah. Um, so, you know, today... This, this honey, for, for, for instance, this blue box honey, it flowers every, between every four and six years. That's right. it. So what's it worth? Mm. You know, we're lucky to have it. So, you know, if the honey industry in Australia would pick up its game and stop importing a whole heap of rubbish honey from overseas and really started marketing our honey here as something really special, then... Beekeepers would be paid more. They wouldn't need to run so many hives. Mm. Um, so they'd be a bit more attentive to their their colonies. Uh, it's a win-win for everybody. They'll make more money. People would would respect bees more because they, they're actually paying for a premium product. They're going to go, oh, well, why, why? And they're going to start asking that question, why is it so expensive? Mm. And, and they'll start finding the answer to that. Uh, you know, a, a honey, a, a tree that flowers every four to six years... Yeah, what's you know, what's that honey worth? Mm. It's got to be worth a lot more than, you know, five bucks a kilo. That's mm. what the packers, that's what the commercial guys get. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's it's got to be worth twenty five, thirty bucks for a jar of honey. I, I personally believe, mm. and and people would respect it and not just goz, guzzle it down. They'd they'd actually sit there and really take in the aromas and flavours of that area and of mm. that particular honey. You know, all this blended honey, it's just, you know, blended honey. Sugary. Yeah, so, 
So if we were to buy localised honey from a particular area and and really respected it, it, it's just so much different. There's so much healing in that. Tim Malfroy does a beautiful honey, you know, from the Blue Mountains and so yeah if you if you're ever looking for good honey there's a there's a there's a honey map have you heard of the honey map mm. on save the bees yeah. website yeah uh simon Mulvaney put together a, a honey map which you can go to at save the bees.com i think it is uh save the bees australia and um you can put in your area your postcode and it'll show you local uh, small-scale honey producers in your area that are selling honey locally. Right. Which is an absolute gold, yeah. gold yeah. thing to produce, you know. Good on him. A really, really... Yeah, he's really doing am- some great yeah, things. Yeah, he is. He? Really amazing what what he's put together there. So if you so want... So for the average person mm. who maybe, you know, isn't going to start looking after bees themselves, yeah. And what's, what, yeah, what do you recommend that they can do to ensure that they're buying honey that is not only the most pure and medicinal mm. honey and yep. flavoursome, but also is looking after the bees the best. Yeah, really important to find a local beekeeper and, um, and ask, the, ask the hard questions. Do you feed your bees sugar? One, one good question. Mm-hmm. Do you move your hives around? How do you treat your bees? You know, are you a natural beekeeper or, or a, you know... I mean, you know, it's not a lot of natural beekeepers around, but the numbers are growing. Um, and how do you find these people? Go to your local bee club. Mm. Um, r- knock on their door, ring their ring their their phone, and and find them online. I mean, there's resources out there today. Uh, and ask them who who produces honey, who sells honey out of your club, because a lot of a lot of amateur beekeepers will sell localized honey. Mm. Uh, so there's a really good localized honey honey source. In the article, we talked to Dr. Neural Kroketten from the University of Technology in Sydney, and she's been doing a lot of research into the micro- antimicrobial activity of honey, as well as also the contribution that honey can give to gut health. So it's shown that by eating as little as a teaspoon of a tablespoon of honey a day can help boost your the probiotics in your gut and with the probiotic activity it doesn't actually matter if it's been heated or not so if you have it in a cup of tea it still is okay and the other thing that's really interesting is the manuka honey so manuka honey comes from New Zealand from the leptospermum plant and leptospermum are basically tea tree plants or jelly bush and the manuka comes from one particular type of that one particular variety of that whereas in Australia we've got about 80 species of those and she's found that about a handful of these have similar levels of antimicrobial activity as the Manuka branded honey. Yeah we call it jelly bush here in Australia because the honey is quite um it's it looks like jelly Mm. in the in the in the the cells it's really hard to get out okay um and um a lot of the Manuka is blended so it's it's blended from manuka honey from, but with with also normal honey to 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 help it so it runs. Otherwise, you, okay, you can't really get it out. You know, it's sort of stuck in the jar and yeah. crystallizes really quick as well and gets really quite thick and sticky. So mm. it needs to be blended to be able to to use it. You know, in in an easy way. Mm. Um, 
Tim Malfoy had a lot of his honey, some of his honey tested recently, which is really interesting. Uh, I only just learnt about this. It was, I think, if you know, it might, I think it was Yellow Box from the Blue Mountains, and he sent it over to New Zealand and, and had it tested mm. for the same properties, and he's came back really high, mm. and that's from Yellow Box. Mm. So it makes you wonder substance that's in manuka honey you know is also can also be available in, in eucalyptus honeys some mm. eucalyptus you know it makes a lot of sense we all know that even even scientists know that all honey has got antibacterials in it mm. antimicrobials yeah. in it as well so um it's just the level of how much that has in it determines mm. how strong or how quick you heal a, an infected wound or something mm. like that so Yep. I think there's so much with honey that we that it can be used for mm. that yeah we need to value it and not be oh, mixing totally. it up with totally. sugar agree. syrup yeah yeah or and beet and syrup or whatever it yeah, is yeah high fructose corn syrup or or, or uh, yeah rice syrup and whatever yeah. whatever they can get their hands on really and that by buying locally yeah. produced honey that's pure and that's mm. not treated mm. we can be getting a lot of maybe not quite the same level but we can be getting a lot of those health benefits yeah. Yeah. by keeping it pure yeah if you're still not sure then i'll put a test to you go to the supermarket grab a, one of those squeeze bottle honeys off the shelf right take it home and go and find a jar of honey from your local small scale backyard beekeeper and taste the difference mm. i guarantee you will be shocked at how different the honey's taste now people don't really know people have lost lost what real honey tastes like because they're too used to grabbing it off the shelf supermarket mm. shelf and they eat what they've been sold and they think that's what honey tastes like but it actually doesn't it tastes completely different mm. so once you've had real honey again uh you'll, you won't you'll, go back you won't go back you'll start to really appreciate spending that extra few dollars on a good jar of honey at your local food market your local little market down the road you know mm. really support the local guy i think it's really important mm. yeah well thanks adrian that's been very enlightening <laughs> and great to sure look inside the beehive and yeah. hear about ways to look after the bees better yeah no worries thanks. it was a it was an absolute pleasure thanks for coming down it's been a nice morning spending it with you yeah cheers robin thanks bye ciao bye everyone thanks if you'd like to see photos and videos that were taken th during that interview that will give you more of a visual representation of some of the things we were talking about go to the PIP Magazine website at www.pipmagazine.com.au, click on Podcasts and find the podcast with Adrian Iodice.